There is currently an exhibit at the Annenberg Space for Photography here in Los Angeles dedicated to hip-hop photography. Called Contact High, it provides a comprehensive overview of how photography was used to market and shape the image and character of hip-hop. Though initially defined by the sounds of MCs on the streets and clubs of New York, it was the photographs that demonstrated that hip-hop was as much about style as it was attitude. One of the photographers that helped to define that era was Sheila Prebright, who began her documentation of the music scene not in New York or even Los Angeles, but in Texas, which provided her a unique opportunity to photograph an ever-evolving music scene. At the same time, she was learning the ins and outs of being a working commercial photographer, which sometimes involved not turning down an opportunity. And I tend, I, my first um, photography job was um, with Burger King. Didn't know what I was doing. I was at a function, and I, I can't remember how it all reflected, but I met this guy, and he said he worked for Burger King, and he was looking for a photographer to shoot aerials. He said, you know how to do that. I'm like, yes, I didn't know how to do that, right? So he says, well, you got a job. And I'm so naive. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went to one of the photographers that I was standing, studying underneath and asked him. I told him I had a job. He said, how did you get that? I said, He's, I told him I knew how to do aerial shots. And, and I said, well, can you be the assistant and you teach me while we're up in the air? And that's how it happened. But much of her work has been defined by her fine art photography. Her concepts are frequently inspired by questions of equality, justice, and what exactly does it mean to be an American? In her work, Suburbia, she explored the homes of middle and upper middle class black families. While the images focused more on the space rather than its occupants, it managed to still challenge the assumptions of some viewers. And when I got there, I had to still have publishers, curators, consultants to look at the work. And the majority of them, when they looked at the work, and I don't know why I was so stunned, they didn't get it because they said that I didn't have enough signifiers in the work to show that these were black homes. And that baffled me because we're in the 21st century, and it showed me how a stereotype in one's consciousness is still there, even though you're showing them reality. It's like, this looked like my home. Why didn't you call it black suburbia? I haven't heard of your suburbia. This is all of the stuff that was coming at me. And me as an artist, I happen to be black, and I'm calling it suburbia. I've been projected on because they wanted to identify it with blackness, whatever the signifiers that they wanted to see. We'll talk to Sheila about her work documenting the Black Lives Matter movement and why public exhibition of her work is sometimes more important than being shown in a gallery. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thank you for having me. But, uh, yeah, thanks. I I'm, um, enjoyed meeting you in D.C., and now i got a, a proper chance to talk with you extensively. Oh, well, that's good. You know, it was my pleasure meeting you. It's good to meet people that we don't know that's in the business, you know? Yeah. That look like us, actually. And your work was amazing. I thought you, you underplayed it because you were going, oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> you're trying to figure out, I don't know what to do. And you, no, know, you wanted I to keep it short. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to keep it short. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I just, I guess this is who I am because I'm that, that, that. It may not seem like I'm shy, but I'm really still kind of introverted. It, to me, it's about the work and not mm -hmm. necessarily about me. And I guess that's why I don't really like to speak to a certain extent. But, but I have to. But yes. you did you did a good job once the wheels were greased. You, you, <laughs> okay, you kept thank it moving. You. It was good. Okay. But uh, I, when I was reading up on you, um, you, mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting to see that you didn't get a bachelor's degree in photography. It was, came like later, and it right. was it was your dad who encouraged you to use a camera. Is that right? Right. Actually, my undergrad is textile design, mm -hmm. so I don't. I'm self-taught as a photographer, 
And when I moved to Atlanta in 1996, my father is the one that says there's something about the photography. And he said, you're going to grad school. So that's why I went to Georgia State and I received my MFA there. Yeah, that's when it started with him. He was like the force of everything to say, you're going here because you have a very keen interest in this. Was your dad an artist himself or was it just something that he just saw in the work that that spurred him to say that? You know, when I reflect back, my father was the person in the family that would always be taking the photographs of us. And even when we travel, he was the one when we traveled a lot. And I remember distinctly as a young child in Germany, he kept us in the museums. We had to go to the museums and stuff. He told me when I was young, and this was in Germany, he says, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do something creative. But he didn't know what that was. Mm. So Mm. when you finished uh, school, you went down to Texas and started photographing hip hop. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Why Why did you feel driven to, to do that? Because this is early in the game when it isn't, it isn't what it is now. Right, right. Um, well, you know, coming from a background of uh, a daughter of a soldier, I think we were sheltered, even though we were around diversity. I wasn't really in the black community. So when I graduated, my brother, how I got to Houston was my older brother. He was in Houston, so I moved there. And I was just a curious person. I mean, I didn't start off taking portraits of rappers. I actually started in the commercial side of it. And I hung around professional photographers. And they taught me the technical aspect of photography from the shutter speeds to the f-stops and about lighting. And I tend, I, my first um, photography job was with Burger King. Didn't know what I was doing. I was at a function. And I, I can't remember how it all reflected, but I met this guy and he said he worked for Burger King and he was looking for a photographer to shoot aerials. He said, you know how to to do that. I'm like, yes, I didn't know how to do that, right? <laughs> so he says, well, you got a job. And I'm so naive. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went to one of the photographers that I was studying underneath. I told him I had a job. He said, how did you get that? I said, he's, I told him I knew how to do aerial shots. And, and I said, well, can you be the assistant and you teach me while we're up in the air? And that's how it happened. My first professional job was up in the air with a door off, hanging out, taking photographs of aerials. And the photographer that was professional photographer, he playing my assistant, he threw up. (laughs) We couldn't come back down because we had to, um, 17 locations we had to shoot. And the pilot was, oh, he was upset because, you know, when he threw up, all of that flew on me and oh, him because the doors opened. It was crazy. And he was so apologetic. And he kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry we came down. But that was my first entry into photography and the commercial realm. Didn't like it. So I decided, well, I want to go phot- photograph rappers. I was real curious about hip hop. Okay. And so I started hanging out in urban communities and started photographing. And I started, one thing led to another. I was photographing independent record companies and these young black males, okay? And then from there, Rap-A-Lot found out about me because I was like the girl in Houston, Texas that's shooting all of them. So that's how it all started. Yeah, because at the time, it was all about New York, the East Side, and a Mm -hmm. little bit, you know, L.A., what was happening sort of in between those two wasn't really sort of a sort of a hot spot, but it was happening everywhere. So it was like it was really advantageous that you were in Houston at the time. Yeah. And I didn't realize that at the time because, you know, you're familiar with Rap-A-Lot Record and Jay Prince. You know, he has a book out now called The Art of Respect. Yes, that book is out. And he talked about his career as as a record label company, and I was a part of that. I came in 
shooting Scarface, not the Ghetto Boys, because that's when Scarface broke off from the Ghetto Boys, and they were pushing him more, and that is who I was actually photographing, and I was actually photographing the other artists that not is not as popular on Rap-A-Lot Records, like Big Mike. They, I think there was one album, and it was something, it's called Something Serious. I photographed him for his CD cover, Black Monks, Tim Smooth, Too Low. So I have a lot of Big Mellow, a lot of them, and Fifth Ward Boys. Those are the ones that I photograph on Rap-A-Lot Records. You know, at the, at the time, it's it wasn't the image of what a rapper's supposed to look like and be like was not as rigid as it eventually became you know where people were looking at the album covers they would see the pictures and all mm-hmm. the people who would came, come up afterwards would emulate what they had seen before but mm-hmm. you were photographing in a time where it was kind of like loose and free and when it came to you making your photographs in terms of you being able to make the photographs you wanted rather than having to fight you know a young rapper trying to be like whoever he was, you know, right. modeling himself after. Can you tell me about the process of creating really unique images during that time? Well, I think because I wasn't with a, it was independent record companies. I wasn't, I was dealing with at Rapalot Records, a, a, a director of that, but I really had loose. I mean, it like you were saying, it was very loose. Whatever I wanted to do, they like, was like, go ahead and do it. I shot nothing. 90% of the work is shot in black and white. All of it is portraiture. And when I reflect back and look at those images, it wasn't really, think about this, I didn't go to school for photography and then it was about what I saw and what I felt. I think I've always had an interest in the black males because when I would engage with all of them, not knowing that they were part of the culture or where they were, you know, selling, you know, the selling, and then part of me being around the gun culture, I was really into why with them and asking them questions. Why are you all here at the house? Why you have all these guns? Are those real guns? And they really looked at me in surprise, like, you're really a white girl in a black body. You really don't, uh, you really don't understand. But they allowed me in and they talked to me like, I don't want to do this. You know, they felt that they didn't have any other choice. But think about this back in that time, didn't go to school, didn't understand about concepts. But I was asking those questions then when I was photographing them is why you want to be a rapper why the guns why the drugs why of all of that you know and it was like it's a catch-22 i had to feed my family Hmm. be damn if you do be damn if you don't so when you were making these these photographs there weren't that were they a lot of photographers around sort of doing the same thing that that you were and what I can speak upon in Houston, before I started with Rap-A-Lot Records, they had another photographer. And what they were doing was just taking images and collaging everything together in Houston, okay? And I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. I, it, I guess it was, I was so in tune to portraiture and photographing the, photographing black males. That's how I saw everything. It, it, like, I give you an example Scarface, they all, I couldn't understand, and that was my naivety, is why is it that they always want to photograph them on the outside, in the neighborhoods, and looking that way? I didn't never, I, I, I was like, we got to do something else. This is in my mind. So what happened one day, I had this idea, and I talked to Brad, which his name is Brad, which is Scarface, and told him that I listened to his music, and he always talked about death. And I said, it was, it was just really a sense of sadness. And I told him that I wanted to come over to his house and I wanted to photograph him in, in natural light with the window light coming through him, right? He was so excited about that. It wasn't on the outside like they basically was doing in the communities. Patrick, which was the um, the um, graphic designer at the time at Rapalot Records, called me and said, don't do that. Is it Virgin Records? Virgin Records was underneath that. They were underneath that label. Says, no, we're having the creative directors come to Houston. Don't do anything. And me being naive again, I called 
Scarface and said, look, they don't want me to do this. I'm not coming over. But thinking back on it, I should have just took those photographs anyway, but Mm -hmm. I didn't do it. So we were outside in the streets again, photographing them in the streets in the neighborhood. So I, I think I always had that, unconsciously so, but didn't really know how to what is it when I say process it at the time? Yeah. It yeah, was like mm-hmm. me photographing, not realizing what I was doing at the time. Well, I saw the, uh, the exhibit and I got the book Contact High, which is mm-hmm. sort of a history of hip hop photography going back way back in the day uh, until now. And one of the things that really kind of struck me about it is that so much of that photography was done by people who were part of the community, that they weren't right. these sort of outsiders sort of coming in to you know, photograph these these hip hop artists, these rappers. Uh, oftentimes, it was you know the kids who weren't rapping themselves, but they had camera, they had film, and they would just start shooting. And there's an intimacy uh, to those images that doesn't seem as contrived and as controlled as so much of the imagery um, now. When you were looking at other people's work during that same time period, were you guys sort of checking out each other's work? deriving influence, or was everyone sort of working sort of in their own respective bubble? For me, I think we were all working on our own perspective bubble. Because I wasn't looking at, I didn't know about really photographers or anything like that. But one thing that I was always looking at, you remember when the magazine, Vive magazine Mm -hmm, was out? I loved the photography in there. I just loved it. And I actually called the director of uh, of the magazine and wanted to be a part of it, but I never could be a part of it, you know? I mean, I'm not saying couldn't, but he never would. He saw the work, it's like, oh, it's okay, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So I just kept doing what I was doing, but that was my influence of looking at the work. But like you were saying earlier, when you look at my work and when people look at the work together with all the black and white images, they see more than just the rapper's they see community with it. It has more. It's not the flash and, you know, all of that. It's more about the community when people see that work now, of my work. I'm just saying my work. You know, a, lot, a lot of your work is black and white. Was that sort of a, a purposeful choice, especially as the interest in more commercial color work uh, was posed to you? No. Remember, at that time, I was, like, self-taught. So working for... Rapalot Records and the independent record companies, they wanted black and white promotional photographs. So that's why I shot in black and white. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, that's that. It wasn't me thinking about I should shoot this in black and white. Should I shoot this in color? I do have a few images that I haven't shown yet that have been shot in color. But not like I said, 99 percent of the work that I shot back then was in black and white because I was even shooting for promotional, you know, promotional their bios. And they all wanted black and white imagery. You're known for some of your conceptual work, and I'm, when did that start coming into play, when you started not so much doing portraiture for the purposes of you know promoting these musicians and these performers, but more uh-huh. in terms of building it from an idea and then seeing it through to, to a photograph? When did that start playing a role in, uh, in your photography? I'm going to start off with this, and then I'm going to answer your question. In Houston, when I was photographing the the portraits, black and white, these promotional photos, and an artist friend saw my work, he says, you need to be in a show. I didn't know anything about art. I didn't know anything about MFAs. I didn't know anything about any of that. And I told him that I wasn't going to be in a show. And he said, I'm going to bring a curator over here. I didn't even have any idea what a curator was, okay? So when a cur- when the curator came and he saw these images that I shot, he was so blown away. He says, I thought you was going to have some cutesy little fashion, you know, <laughs> um, work. And he says, I want you in this show. So I said, okay. And so when I accepted that, and keep in mind, I never went to art school or anything like that. I went and got shoeboxes. And the whole concept for that was I wanted to get shoeboxes from Nike. Because, you know, when it came to the NFL and all of that, that was just really hot. So I took those shoeboxes and spray painted them on the, 
black on the outside and the inside and had those images in the um, shoeboxes. And that's how they were hung up. Now, don't you think that was conceptual? And I didn't even realize I knew what I was doing at the time. So people would have to take a look in a hole in the shoebox to see the photograph? Is that the way? No, you know, just open up the, take the lid off the shoebox. Mm -hmm. So everything is black on the outside and the inside. And I place, I think they were about five by seven images. Oh, okay. The sizes. So you as a viewer, and I didn't realize at the time, you had to really get close to those images to look at them. I it's like you. looking through. It's looking through a view box. I didn't realize that I was doing that. And when the curator, when they had the opening of the show, I wasn't going to go. And he called me and he says, "You need to get down here." I said, "No, I do not." I said, "A picture speaks for itself. Why do I have to come?" He said, "Sheila, please." So I came, and when I came, there were people at the door, and that frightened me. And they wanted to talk to me about the work. And one of the images that I, that you seen with Class C, where my last frame on the row, I didn't know what to do. Class C had a gun. I told him to point it at me. And he said, do you want me to point this gun at you? I said, point the gun at me. And that was the photograph. And I blurred him out, and you see the barrel of the gun. And people wanted, I'm going back to the exhibit, people wanted to asked me, did he have a bullet in the gun? And I said, well, I didn't think about asking him that, okay? I just wanted this shot. And from there, people told me that I was a going to be a star in the art world. I didn't know what all that meant. You had women that I was in a group show, three other women that had their MFAs. I didn't know nothing about any of that. I left Houston with my then my now husband, my boyfriend, we heading off to California, okay? I think about all this art stuff. But my aunt, we got to Santa Fe. My aunt passed and we came to Atlanta. And that's when my father was looking at my work and says, you need to go to school because mm -hmm. there's something about this photography you like. And that's where I learned about how to see how to be conceptual with the work. And that's where it all started because, believe it or not, when I had my show, I didn't know how to talk about work. I was like, these are portraits of rappers, okay? But now reflecting back on it, and I really didn't want to show this work because a lot of it was black males with the gun culture, and I'm very protective of that because how others see us, I didn't want it to be the same old thing the image of the stereotypes of a black male criminal thug, you know, that kind of thing. Now I feel more comfortable now bringing that work out, which I never really showed the work. And I'm baby, I'm understanding how to conceptualize it and talk about it now. One of your personal projects uh, is Suburbia, yes. which is really fascinating. I would love to see more, more of that work. Mm hmm. Tell me about when that sort of came into play. Were you still studying your MFA? Was it, did it come up afterwards? How did this project come to mind? Right after gra I graduated in 2003, I've always was fascinated when I came to Atlanta to go into the urban neighborhoods because I did a body of work called Coming Home. And it was in the urban communities shooting the landscape in black and white. So when I got out of grad school, I decided to point my camera to suburbia because at that time in the art world, everybody was talking about suburbia. And with all the images that you see of African-Americans is in urban America. And I got tired of looking at those images. I already know what that is. Show me something else, okay? So I decided to, because you have a large community in Atlanta where you have a large African-American community that lives in suburbia. So that's how I came up with the concept of suburbia because I wanted to talk about the invisibility of African-Americans who lived in suburbia. Even though we see that African-Americans are progressing and we see that on TV, but we never sit still and really look about their environment. So that's how I came up with the suburbia and I called it suburbia. And that's when in 2006, it was called back then the Santa Fe Prize Photography. I think it's called Center now in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I, won, uh, I became national and I won um, this award. 
I was so excited. And when I got there, I had to still have publishers, curators, consultants to look at the work. And the majority of them, when they looked at the work, and I don't know why I was so stunned, they didn't get it because they said that I didn't have enough signifiers in the work to show that these were black homes. And that baffled me because we're in the 21st century, and it showed me how a stereotype in one's consciousness is still there, even though you're showing them reality. It's like, this looked like my home. Um, why didn't you call it black suburbia? I haven't heard of your suburbia. This is all of the stuff that was coming at me. And me as an artist, I happen to be black, and I'm calling it suburbia. I've been projected on because they wanted to identify it with blackness, whatever the signifiers that they wanted to see. When you mean signifiers, what do you think they meant? What did they? What were they expecting to see or wanting to see in the photographs? Well, I asked this publisher that looked at the work because he said he didn't see anything in it. And I he because he says, I grew up in the era of Martha Luther King. He says, you just don't have enough signifiers. I said, well, what is it that you want to see? And he looked at me. So I made a joke and I said, fried chicken, collard greens and watermelon. Quiet didn't say anything. (laughs) So I never did get it. They said it don't look like my home. That was the whole point of it, to show universal commonality amongst all of us. Yeah. Were the people in the homes that you photographed people that you knew, or did you, how, how did you find the subject matter for that series? It was very hard, because when it comes to us, we're very protective about our image. So it was a friend of mine that lived in suburbia, and at first it was like, no, no, you can't do it. No, no, no. I said, look, I'm not showing you. So they don't know who homes these these are. Oh, I got to go home and clean up. I'm like, no, don't do that. So that's how it started. And then a friend saw the images and then it all started coming together. They allowed me to come in. And even though I didn't, you might see bodies in, in it's kind of subdued bodies in the work of, of black bodies in the work. And you really don't see their faces. And when I won this major award, a lot of them says, well, you could have photographed me, you know, you know, photographed yeah. me. But it, that was the whole purpose of the work, to show the invisibility of the African-Americans. And as people move up in class, it becomes much more difficult to, get, to gain access. It's really oh, yes, surprising. Yes. People who have nothing or virtually nothing in comparison to even a middle uh-huh. class community. Uh-huh. It's amazing how people just open up their homes and it's like, welcome, you can photograph whatever you want and as long as you're providing you know a degree of respect and interaction right. you know but when it comes to people in middle class or especially upper class man it's really hard to get that access you know because yeah. as you said they're very protective they're very suspicious and they're used mm-hmm. to being in control and i think that's a big mm-hmm. part of it i think that's right. a big reason why there's so much resistance because they are where they are because they've been able to have some control over the dynamics of their life and having a photographer come in to document it where they don't have that power is threatening to a a variety of different degrees. So it's really kind of interesting that that the work explores that, even though it's, in this case, it's focusing on African-Americans. It's still that, that the whole idea of being protective and also being wary about who gets to see inside. You know what I'm saying? Right, because right after that, when I won this award, my mind is always going. I wanted to start photographing when they go, like African-Americans, when they go to parties and all of this stuff. I couldn't do it. They wouldn't allow me to do it. So I never could get access to do it. Now, when I deal with rap or trap music, no problem. But I I have not been able to do that yet. Do you want to be the voice that introduces the episode at the top of the show? Send us an audio clip that you can record on your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply say your name, where you're from, and this is The Candid Frame. Say it at least twice and give us a few seconds of silence so that we can clean up the audio. Once it's done, email it to info at thecandidframe.com and make sure to include your link to your website or Instagram feed.
Help the Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you. So talk to me about uh, your most recent book, which is 1960 Now. Mm-hmm. And tell us about how that project began, because it's an amazing, powerful body of work that's been uh, taking a lot of uh, your time over the past several years. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did it all begin? Well, actually, as an artist, I start, I'm always thinking and I'm always looking at pop culture. And that's what dr- drives my work, to be honest with you. And right after suburbia work, I started on a body of work um, called Young Americans. Didn't know I was going to name it that at the time. But I was thinking about young people because that was in between the time when Obama, which was he wasn't a president yet, was thinking about running. People always say what well, I perceive it as being negative about the, the, the next generation, which is the millenniums, is like the only thing that they're really interested in is the technology, branding, and money, and all of that. They have no interest in politics. So that piqued my curiosity, and I'm like, well, I'm always thinking about myself when I was young, and I said, you know what? There was a lot of things that I was interested in when I was young, but the Older people would just laugh and wouldn't say no, no, no. So I said, I want to do a portrait, a body of work, a portraiture again, and I want to photograph young people. And at the time, the atmosphere with the politics, I started looking at that with young people. And it, and I didn't know what I was going to do and how I was going to take these photographs. But I woke up one morning and my dream said, you're going to take a picture of them with the flag. That's how it all started. And I said, I will not tell them what to do with the flag. I'm going to ask them one question. What does it mean to be an American in the 21st century? So that body of work started in 2006. And I think I photographed two young people. And my only criteria was they had to be 18 to 25. Why 18 is when the time when you start, you're out of your parents' home. You know, either you're going to college or whatever you're doing. And they're kind of independent from their parents to a certain extent. And I wanted to know what their thoughts was. And I asked them this. How do you see yourself with this American flag? And let's talk about America. And that's how it all got started. And when did it segue into the work that you were doing in terms of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and Oh, yeah, because I kind of got off. I started talking about that. That actually connected with Black Lives Matter because in 2013, before then, um, with Young Americans, I had a show, my first solo show at the High Museum here in Atlanta. And then two or three years later, I started wheat pacing the Young Americans out in the communities. And I love that because I feel that my work really connects with the masses of the people because when you think about museums and galleries, there's only a certain group of people, the elitists and other groups that go to this, to to the museums. It's not the masses of the people. They're trying to change that now. So when I started doing the wheat pace, I actually... I loved it. And 2013, Trayvon Martin happened. And I started thinking about young people again, and I'm like, wow. I says, I was thinking about the young people in the civil rights movement. So I went and started talking to them about the movement because of what happened to Trayvon Martin and police brutality. And these different, it's the same thing back in the 60s, but it's just a different signifier. So I started talking to the elders. I started photographing portraits of them. I started wheat pacing them on walls, freedom riders, unknown civil rights leaders that we never heard of. I learned so much from them. And when the shootings continued and continued, I felt that I needed to go to the ground. So I went from Atlanta to Ferguson to Baltimore to Washington 
to Baton Rouge. And I, as an artist, as a woman, and as a black person, I felt that I needed to start looking at our own stories because far too long we have been looking at us through the eyes of the colonizer. And that's how we have learned of ourselves. So I'm kind of claiming our narrative, not reclaiming it because we didn't know it, not necessarily so, claiming our narratives. It's such a big issue to address, especially visually. Did you have a clear idea about how you wanted to tackle it, or did it reveal itself as you produced work? It revealed itself when it stopped in 2016, because from 2013 to 2016, I was so driven. I didn't really understand how emotional I was. I was lecturing exhibiting and shooting on the ground on planes off planes from 2000 actually really started in 2014 to 16 and when it stopped when a lot of the protesting wasn't going on that's when it started coming together to me I didn't realize that I was producing all of this work like this I was shooting portraiture in the studio of the elders portraiture of the young people that were in the movement now and protest images and shooting video all at the same time so when I got approached by Chronicle Books to do a book and I had to gather all this stuff together then I was like wow I I couldn't believe that I did this work and I started really start conceptually looking at the work and what I was doing because when I was out on the ground I purposely shot in black and white. I purposely shot 90% of the work with a portrait lens, okay? And I shot square because I the work is called 1960 Now, and I'm playing on what the young people in the 60s were doing when it came to human rights. Like, it's the same thing that the young people are experiencing in a different signifier, the same thing. That's why it's called hashtag 1960 now. One of your more powerful pictures is of the Mothers of the Movement, which is modeled after a famous photograph made by Richard Avedon of civil rights workers in, in, in Atlanta. Tell us about that, the image, because that is... A powerful image, but I know it also was a very difficult one to pull off. Yeah. Last year, um, I was approached, along with nine other artists, to um, do murals in Atlanta for the upcoming, up uh, in February of this year. And what it was, it was part of the NFL because Atlanta, they had, what is it? What do you call that? Because I'm not real good with sports. What Super did Bowl. they have? The Super Bowl in Atlanta in Jan was it in January or February? I'm too good as well. I think something around. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, it was here the first part of um, this quarter. But I was approached last year about this, and I did not realize because the organization didn't say it was part of the NFL. They just asked, "Would you like to do a mural?" And I love doing murals. I love museums and galleries, but I love murals, okay? So I agreed to do it and I did not realize until they asked me to come to the press conference that it was part of the host committee of the NFL, the mayor and the art organization where they partnered together and the theme was social justice. And I felt a, 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 a certain kind of way about it because I've been shooting Black Lives Matter. I was very upset when they flipped the narrative when it came to Colin Kaepernick and I really didn't want to have no part of the NFL. But what happened was my sister and other people talked to me and they said, Sheila, you're the perfect person to do this because we know that you're going to do a protest within that. So I had to think about it, and I said, okay, I'll do it. But at the time, I didn't know what I was going to do. But I felt that I needed to take another level. I don't need to show protest images. So I I, I guess I was on the Internet, and I I can't remember if I was specifically looking at um, Julian Bond, an iconic civil rights leader in Atlanta, Georgia, that was the leader of SNCC in Atlanta. That's Student Nonviolent coordinating committee Mm -hmm. but actually I saw his image but one of the photographers that I really 
looked at a lot when I was in grad school was Richard Avedon, an iconic photographer in the 21st century. And I love his portraiture because he shot individuals up against a white background. So he took them out of their environment and you can really look at that person. I was so amazed with his work. So when I saw this image of Julian Bond that was taken in 1963 by Richard Avedon in Vine City in Atlanta, where you had some of the civil rights leaders living at that time, like Martin Luther King, Julian Bond, and their children, when I saw that image, it was amazing. Richard Avedon came down, photographed in Vine City in 1963, Julian Bond holding his daughter Phyllis, she was nine months years old, in Vine City with the SNCC students behind her. I thought that was a very powerful image. And for Julian Bond to hold his daughter, I thought about the mothers. And I said, I'm going to bring the mothers here. And I'm going to recreate that same image in Vine City with the mothers. In totality, it doesn't look exactly like that. But the concept came from that. And the three women that were from out of town is Gwendolyn Carr, the um, I Can't Breathe. He, I can't even think of his name right now. I Can't Breathe. He is the one's mother that came down. And then Tamir Rice's mother came down, the young boy that got shot playing with a toy gun in Ohio. And then Oscar Grant's mother from Oakland, which happened in 2009. They just named a street name after Oscar, Oscar Grant after him. And they have a big mirror up in Oakland, California. So I brought those three women down along with mothers who've, um, whose children have fallen to police brutality here. And I also included Dr. Rosalind Pope, who went to Spelman College in 1960, and she authored The Pill of Human Rights, and she was part of the Atlanta student movement. And what I really wanted to kind of show in this work was about self-care and talk about trauma and how these mothers have moved on. So I was showing a photograph back then of Julian Bond taken by Richard Avedon, and then my image but I had the hardest time to get that image up from blacks and whites and it blew me away because this is the home of the civil rights movement. I had to, in order for me to get the building, I, a collector of mine from Florida was able to get the building for me. I couldn't get anybody to get me to get a building. They said it was, it was too political. When you speak the truth, people think you're radical. You're, you're, you're too political. I'm just speaking the truth. I'm trying to move forward. How can we progress? Okay? I had to hire installers. Even though I was the artist, I became the project manager. <laughs> I hired the installers. I was going off on everybody. The last two weeks, I was a warrior. And it's amazing. I got it up. And it's off of 190 Trinity Street. And I have a guerrilla street curator that curates my work out in the streets. And we went out looking. And she said, Sheila, it would be good if we put it right around the corner from the police station, the courthouse, and city council. And it's in the midst, in the middle of all of that. Mm. Well, this, all of this work. You just mentioned the word trauma. So all of this work is re really rooted deeply in an incredible amount of pain, of loss. And in the case of the mothers, a sort of a reinvention of themselves after the loss of their children. Right. But for you, you know, you're a mother. So I I'm sure that being in the midst of that, because you, as you said, you were traveling all over the country in, in visiting situations where the feelings and the loss was just really ripe. Right. And so... I know to some degree you probably used the photography as the means of being able to sort of go through it emotionally and be able to mm -hmm. sort of not get overwhelmed by it. But mm -hmm. I'd like you to sort of speak about the self-care that you needed to do just to make sure that you didn't hit a wall and burn out prematurely. 
Yeah, in 2016, when everything kind of stopped with a lot of the, you know, in between 2013 and 2016, it was constantly, everybody was out in the streets. And when that kind of subsided a little bit, I myself said, oh, my God, I am emotionally emotional and I need self-care. How are you going to deal with this self-care? Okay. And I needed to take a break from it. But what happens with me, and I think through my photography, that's how I kind of deal with it. And with the mothers, because what I learned so much with the mothers, and I wasn't even thinking about this, there is trauma with the mothers, with with other mothers, because some of the mothers are upset with the other mothers because some of them are getting more attention than some of the other ones. And they will really go off on them about like what makes your son more important than mine. And that made me understand from when our ancestors were brought over here to the civil rights movement, to the black power movement, to I look at hip hop was the voice of CNN. That was a movement up until now. Can you understand all that trauma as the race of people continually have to deal with and how we internalize it. We don't talk about mental illness in our communities because a lot of that has something to do with it too. We've been, we have, we have born into a movement, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we want to deal with it or not. And I just think that our, it's like, is it W. E. D. Du Bois and not him? Or who was the poet or something? We're the two-faced. We just, we're resilient people, but we don't really know how to do self-care with us. So I'm learning right now to be able to do that. And what helped me out a lot is being around the mothers. Because even though I'm a photographer and I think in journalism, it's like you don't need to be a participant. I cried. We were crying. We laughed. And it felt so good. And this wasn't about me as an artist or a photographer. It's bigger than me. I'm just being moved by the spirit. It seems to me that one of the reasons why you like getting your work outside of the galleries, you talked about the wheat pasting and about about the murals, is that you get and you provide an opportunity for the very people that you photograph to see themselves. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes when those communities are photographed, they never really get to see the work. Even in the age of digital, they may see the back of the camera, but they barely get to see the book or go to the galleries to see uh, see the work exhibited. Talk to me about that. Why is that so important for you? Uh, why do you want to make sure that your work gets gets seen by the very people that you're using as the you know as the material for your for your art? If I could say this like this, it's very painful for our community really to look back and look at this. We don't really want to deal with it. And I think that it's very—it's like the movie, How Do They See Us? It was, even though I've been on the ground, I've seen a lot of stuff, it was difficult for me to watch this. And I said, Sheila, you have to watch it. It's very painful. And I think once we as a community can face this and deal with it, Maybe we could move forward with it. And maybe the stories that have been told by us versus the others been telling our stories for decades, maybe we can have a better understanding, even though we know about the subject matter. For example, Ava DuVernay, Mm -hmm, she, she did an excellent job of telling that story. She not only made you see it, she makes you feel it. And with my imagery, I want you not just to see, I want you to feel it. And maybe then we can move forward with it, okay? As difficult as it is. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? One photographer? I had to think about that. I'm thinking about some younger photographers. 
You know, I like Ruddy Roy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like Mike McCoy. <laughs> I, I really want to think about oh, women. Does it have to be a, a photographer? Could it be filmmaker like Ava? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Ava DuVernay. I mean, even though she's out there, everybody knows her. She speaks to me through her moving images. She makes me feel, I mean, this, what she did is very powerful. It's very hurtful, but it's very powerful. And it showed me how, even though the title of it is How They See Us, for me, is really about how do we see us? And that's what I think about when I see her work. So I really commend her for what she has done. And what it has done is the young people through their technology, through Twitter and Instagram, they shutting a lot of people down that had something to do with to do with the prosecutor. She's no longer at Columbia now. Mm-hmm. And so that's the power that I think that moving forward with the next generation, it gives them the power like I could go out and tell these stories. Okay. And that's what she has done. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for your time, and it was a real joy to have a chance to talk with you again. And thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Thanks to Sheila for sharing her time and story with us. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting SheilaPreBright.com. And at the end of the month... I'm going to be in Vancouver, Canada, teaching a weekend workshop with fellow street photographer Olaf Staba. Check out the video where we discuss the workshop and sign up soon as there are a few spots available. Find out more by visiting the website at visualpoetexperience.com. To hear and see me talk about my personal photographic process, visit the TCF YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. Check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My most recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. Purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code PORELLO40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. If you enjoy the show, help to spread the word by writing a review wherever you find and listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on a blog post, let me know and send me a link because I would really love to thank you on air. Thanks to Nine Borges from the UK for their five star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. And if you scroll down on the app, you'll find a free excerpt of my book that you can download. And we also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.